0: And they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged, elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. I am your friendly neighborhood's talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And today, we're going to learn why doing more with less is a big, fat lie. And the net-net is, unless you care, dare, and prepare, you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm -hmm. Joining us today is Manuel Juevas-Tresan, Trisan, is the VP of HR at Harvard University, and he's been in that role since 2021. In that capacity, he's setting the overall strategic vision for the HR organization, at the university he's been in charge of overseeing a employee community of roughly twenty thousand people in the organization he's a thought leader and his focus is on how harvard can thrive in the workplace of the future so prior to joining harvard he's had deep experience in the areas of employment policies talent development labor relations total rewards so he's got a pretty diversified background And then earlier in his career, he had spent time at Motorola. Manuel was the VP of Human Resources and CHRO at Northwestern University. And then prior to that, he had an extensive career at Motorola Solutions. And there's a whole lot of stuff in addition to that. But here's one thing that I'm going to call out. He's actually had some continuing education that's been completed in Barcelona. So if you're wondering where he's likely stands on the Ronaldo versus Messi debate. I think the answer is going to be pretty clear. Manuel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much,
1: Dr. James. absolutely a pleasure to be here.
0: Before we dive into the conversation, why don't you get the listeners up to speed a little bit on some of the things that we might have left out in that bio and that background that you feel is important for the listeners to hear about?
1: The one thing that perhaps not necessarily unique, but it's somewhat different from your typical HR leader is that I do not have a a traditional uh, background. Uh, I, I did not grow up as an HR practitioner, although HR has always been a client of mine professionally because I started my career as an employment and labor lawyer, and therefore my primary clients both in corporate settings and various other types of settings in law firms were the HR directors or HR managers, HR leaders and of course focus on legal compliance. But as I joined Motorola back in 1998, a member of the in-house legal team, the one great thing about the company for a lawyer was that the lawyers were very embedded with their clients. So I worked very closely, and I like to say that I learned HR through practice and through osmosis by working very closely and rigorously with the HR clients until I became, of course, integrated in their day-to-day and eventually became an HR practitioner myself.
0: One of the things that I'm really interested in understanding is when you make the pivot from a product and engineering organization and move into higher education, what was different that you didn't anticipate when you made that pivot?
1: What was fascinating about Motorola, and I have a, a debt of gratitude always for what I, I call Motorola my second university, is that the legal department, as I said, was highly embedded in the client organizations, but also was very focused, especially when I became here at Chiro. We had been a very product-centric organization for many years, for decades, in fact, and we needed to start making a pivot organization towards a software and solutions focused. And that entailed, for example, think about the people implications of that. That was an incredible school for me. We had always focused and our strength as a company for decades had been product quality, digital Six Sigma, minimal defects per million parts. That is a perfectly appropriate culture for a hardware-based culture. When we started making the shift towards a software and solutions company, then you have to become much more iterative. If you think about uh, a cell phone has a hardware component, but increasingly they have become much more software conduits. Software is iterative by nature. And so you have to become much more accustomed to releasing products that are less than perfect, but they're adequate for the market and then continue to improve over time. That also necessitated a shift in the mindset of the hiring culture, of the performance management culture, of the compensation culture, and of course, related systems in the organizations. Then the shift towards higher ed was very similar for me to that shift within Motorola, because I like to say that both our product, our service, and our process in a university is fundamentally about people and furthering knowledge, which by nature is iterative and always incremental in nature.
0: That's some really great context, and I appreciate you spelling that out. So I want to move right into our rapid-fire segment and get you warmed up for the big conversation by having some little conversations. Thank when you think about your time at Harvard, what's the thing that you're most proud of that you've accomplished during your time here?
1: We have accomplished a lot, but the other important pivot that I think it's a segue to the answer is that universities tend to play the long game. Therefore, the process of change is, I think, just as fast in terms of the effort that it takes, but the wheels seem to be larger, and therefore every a circle of that wheel takes longer because you have decentralized organizations, different coexisting business models within an organization, and therefore to achieve lasting change, it, it takes a while. I always remind people that Harvard was 140 years old already, when the Declaration of Independence was signed. And yet we're still around, we're still around and thriving, but that means that we are constantly playing for the long game. So with that preface, I would say that one of the things that it's a work in progress and that I think I was able to achieve at Motorola and get started at Northwestern was shifting the mindset around people to a focus on investment. And really using the lessons that we learn and even the language that we use around investment rather than looking at people as a cost. If you look at a at any balance sheet, almost invariably, the largest line item in any balance sheet when it looks at costs and the ledger is people. But if you look at people at cost, not as investment, it's going to be very hard for you to be a lasting, as lasting an employer as Harvard has been. And so making that shift in mindset is really more of a cultural
0: shift. Uh, I
1: think we're well on our
0: way to do that. I want to put a, an emphasis on what you just said. It's really interesting, the longevity of Harvard University with that and that transition into that investment mindset. And you compare it to a lot of organizations over the last, even the last year and a half, where they will outwardly say people are our most valuable resource, we invest in our people, and then what do you see? Layoff after layoff and all sorts of just ham-handed policy that's being pushed out, which really makes you question, do they really mean what they say? When you're thinking about what's next, what are the moonshots that you have on your radar that you want to get done while you're in this role at Harvard?
1: So... When I talk about an investment mindset and and an investment culture, and and not in a Wall Street sense, but in terms of developing your capabilities, improving your capabilities, expanding your contribution as a team or as an organization, I talk about essentially talent management. Talent management in in as rigorous a way as you would manage a portfolio if you were an asset manager. And again, this is the most respectful and least commoditizing of ways. I mean it sincerely in terms of identifying the capabilities of your people. For that, you need information. You can't have an investment portfolio that's successful if you're just guessing about what your stock is. Universities in particular are actually lagging behind. Harvard is no exception, are lagging behind in terms of harnessing the power of data about their people. Universities have extraordinary wealth of data, especially on research and on the different fields of education that they pursue. When it comes to their people systems, it's very rare to find universities that have adequate talent portfolios. If there's a vacancy at a senior administrative level, there's no uh, next next man up mentality because the information may not be readily available. It's, It's aggregated, it's dispersed, and it's in systems that don't talk to each other. So the moonshot for me is to develop effectively what I would refer to as a talent for portfolio, where you identify the most critical positions, uh, the ones that are most important today and in the immediate foreseeable future, and figuring out who are the incumbents, where are the gaps, uh, what are the capabilities, and more important, and this is what I'm most proud of, both at Motorola, and Northwestern, and hopefully at Harvard, and I have no, no indication that I shouldn't be optimistic is that we also need to capture people's aspiration. That's the one thing that I find that it's not always present in talent management systems. We rely on people to figure out what Dr. Jim's aspiration may be instead of creating a system where Dr. Jim is invested in telling us what and and do it safely and clearly what their aspiration is. If I don't capture aspiration, how can it be effectively managing my talent? So it's capturing their capabilities based on their resumes, based on their experiences, based on their performance, but also capturing their aspiration, because your aspiration may be completely different than what your manager
0: thinks it's. I want to highlight a few things. I think one of the things that surprised me about what you said is the fact that in higher ed, the ability to collect and synthesize and then act on the vast amount of data isn't really something that that is done well there. So that was surprising to me, especially given the research context that I know about yeah. the university system. When I listen to what you're saying, the fundamentals that you're talking about, having our systems talk to each other, having a single system of truth or, or even visibility in terms of what your talent pipeline looks like, I think that's a problem that goes not only in the higher ed sector, but that's a problem that exists across all sorts of sectors. Because, and, and here's why I'm not surprised by that aspect of it, because what happens when you talk to senior leaders of a lot of organizations and there's positions that are open or whatever or they come in, everything is reflexively pointed into, we have a hiring problem. And what you just said right. is talking about a development and retention problem that exists and people are focused or leaders are focused on the wrong thing. Everything is not a hiring problem. In fact, most of the problems that you have from a people perspective are likely a factor of poor development or poor retention, which are related. So I really like that distinction that you drew out. This one should be easy. When you think about your position, what's the most fun aspect about the role that you're in right now?
1: The place itself is the most fun for someone who's motivated by learning, by engaging with people and to engage in learning opportunities that you can apply both in life and at work. A place like Harvard and in fact, many universities offer extraordinary array of opportunities to learn on the job and off the job. For example, the campus and its history itself is a daily lesson. You walk around campus, plaques with information, historical data that is simply fascinating. Number two, you have museums, you have cafes, you have dining halls, you have vibrant student life and learning environments. So for someone who loves to learn, it's fantastic. Then more specifically on the job, aside from having a fantastic team of people who think, some people think very big, some people throw, think very deep, and, and, that, and you always learn from different styles. I like to say that, for example, in in the area that a lot of people associate as boring on the job for in, in roles like mine, I sit in the investment committee of the university for the pension and the retirement plans. I also sit on the benefits committee. In those committees, those are interdisciplinary in nature, and I get to exchange and be part of the decision making and the advising with world class health economists for for the administration and innovations of our benefits programs. When it comes to investment, I sit with world-class renowned social and behavioral scientists uh, and economists who help inform the decision as fiduciaries of our plans. And uh, just to see the level of care, depth of knowledge, and commitment to our participants and to our employees is incredibly inspiring and also a lot of fun. These are people who, contrary to what you would believe, they're, they're, they're high-minded, but they're intellectually curious and humble and also eager to learn.
0: Let's dive into the big part of the discussion. The whole idea about doing more with less is a big fat lie. And that ties directly into the game-changing realization that you had that really helped you build high performance teams so connect those dots for us
1: i didn't start out as a as an hr professional so perspective changes everything when you are working and as as i did at earlier stages in my career as an employment lawyer you are not engaged in the decision making you are engaged in the advising you are typically not part of the front end and the design of your of the decisions at an, at an organization, but you're providing advice to decision makers. So you get to almost sit as coldly and as detached, and you can analyze what's going on. And I've partaken over the years in multiple reorganizations, multiple calls to doing more with less, multiple calls to cut costs using blunt force instruments, layoffs and plant closings and things like that. And there are circumstances that truly may require that, that are truly dire. But in the ordinary course of business, I don't think you can do more with less. The, and that's why I always say that is actually a, a fallacy. I think you can only do more, and by doing more, expanding the range of a particular team's contribution, being more productive in the manufacturing line, being more effective in the delivery of classes in the university. You have to have the right people. So it's not about doing more with less. It's about achieving and expanding contribution with the right people and, of course, other right resources. But it's about right rather than less or more.
0: Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community, get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. I really like how you phrase that, and especially the piece where you've talked about earlier in your career or in other instances, you've had to use some blunt force instruments in the form of layoffs and all these other things to right-size an organization. Everybody talks about building culture that's deeply aligned with mission, vision, and values. I even talked about in the beginning of the show, if you want to be elite, you need people who care, people who dare, and people who prepare. So if you're in this do more with less environment and you're using some of these crude tools to right size the environment, how are you working across purposes on building elite teams? Tell us about some of the impacts that you've seen. When you
1: are trying to become more efficient, you are effectively talking about doing things differently. And that leads to this good old basic context or concept of change. And so when I talk about doing more with the right people, it's about finding the people who are ideally suited to champion that change and who have the capabilities and the disposition to push through that change at whatever pace is necessitated to get to the end result. And so that's why I use this kind of trinomial of people who care people who dare and people who prepare. You cannot fake caring about the mission. You either care or you don't, and that comes across in your mission orientation, in your commitment to collaboration, in the way you engage with others, and in the ultimate commitment to the end goals uh, of the organization. Daring is to me about having the courage to go against the grain because change by nature requires that you go from a present state to desired state, the the conditions of which haven't been met. And that requires that level of courage, that level of persistence and willingness to move forward. And then preparation is the other one. People need, and that's when I talk about capabilities, there are people who may care and there, but may not have the tools. So either you can invest in them to develop them, or you need to make sure you find them uh, from elsewhere in the organization uh, to be able to push any change initiative uh, through.
0: When you look at building an organization with people who have those attributes that you mentioned, care, dare, prepare, how are you bringing that to life at the line level as a manager or leader that is building out their team, what are the things that you should be doing and you should be deliberately focusing on a day, even on a day in, day out basis? First, I think
1: organizations have become so complex over the the history of the industrialized and now the knowledge economy that you need to have talent around you that has interdisciplinary aptitude and willingness to constantly learn from people around them and constantly share their knowledge of or their expertise in a particular area. So if you're hiring a recruitment leader, a talent acquisition director, for example, and you only go with somebody who has only done talent acquisition all their lives, in those, in some places that may work because they may be simpler organizations, they're more autocratic, the authority may not be distributed, like in universities and large multinationals, the there's matrix organizations and there are issues of authority and there are interdependencies. So you need to bring somebody to lead talent acquisition who is not just an expert in talent acquisition. They need to know their business. They need to know the systems. They need to know what an ATS or how to transform an ATS, but ultimately they need to be able to see beyond their lane and connect the dots and at least issue spot to be able to be effective. So first and and foremost, in terms of their capabilities and their preparation, I look at people who are interdisciplinary thinkers more than linear uh, thinkers, and then people who dare and are courageous to just persist because the only thing that's constant is not just change, it's actually the resistance to change or inertia.
0: There's an interesting aspect of what you just described in terms of your talent strategy when you're looking to bring people on. You're putting an emphasis on people who are interdisciplinary. And you also tied that to your point about one of the things that, that great teams have the ability to fight is the organizational inertia. So that interdisciplinary, the way that I understand what you just described is that those people who are skilled across an enterprise and have a lot of collaborative skills across the enterprise, they're the ones that are most likely to be mobilizing those people who tend to, be, tend to prefer to stand still. And that's the connection that that you're bringing forward. Am I getting that right?
1: A hundred percent, and not only that, people who have that breadth of experience and interest to engage with other parts of the the organization, I like to say that their imagination is expansive. They ask, as our new president would say, not just the whys, but the why nots. And therefore, look for ways of doing things differently and bring people along along the way. I brought my 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 talent acquisition lead at Harvard, is not was not in a talent acquisition lead role. A lot of experience in that field, but she was the head HR consultant for the development alumni affairs and development organization at Johns Hopkins. And I was very deliberate in that choice. I wanted somebody who could speak competently, especially to some of the areas in our university that were more challenged in terms of hiring and retention by having people who had experiences in other fields as well.
0: So there's a couple big lessons that I've drawn so far in, in what you've said. I think when you're talking about building elite teams, the preference should be the people who can think in a matrixed format. Those are the ones that are going to be able to transform an organization in the direction that you want. The other thing that uh, you just mentioned it right now, and I think it's important to call out as well, is the capacity to ask the question, why not? If you want to innovate, if you want to iterate, if you want to transform, you can't really root yourself in the status quo. You have to ask those why not questions. Manuel, really great conversation so far. And I think your point about building an organization that's full of matrix thinkers in pursuit of building that elite team is great. What are the things that leaders need to watch out for when they're trying to make that transition from being a team of linear thinkers to a team of matrix thinkers?
1: The biggest pitfalls are basically two sides of the same coin, which is uh, impatience and shortcuts. This, any time you try to take a shortcut, particularly on on cultural transformation, on systems transformation, on on big change initiatives, you need to not bind yourself to artificial timelines and artificial projects. I have seen both ends of the spectrum. Organizations at times that give themselves way too much time and set goals that are or objectives that are just too far out that they become so remote that people just look at them as as abstract and are having a difficulty envisioning how to get there. But the more frequent scenario, particularly in for profit entities that are understandably and legitimately under the pressure to to meet shareholders' expectations is budgets that are unrealistic and timelines that are way too short to accomplish major transformation efforts. And then that leads to having to spend a lot on on retention payments because people are burning out in in the middle of a project and things that are ultimately unhealthy for the well-being of the organization.
0: You just called out something that is an up-and-coming sort of viral series of videos, which is corporate math corporate math, expecting elite performance, and then your equipment is duct tape and super glue. We want to go to the moon. Okay, how are we going to get here? Here's some duct tape. Here's some super glue, corporate math. Let's close the loop on all of this. So when we think about this conversation and building a high performance team, what are the most important things that you would say leaders need to watch out for given your experience and your trajectory and your story that you've shared today?
1: I would say look for people who are genuine in their care for what the organization does, who are excited about not just the present, but also when the going gets tough, who see a sense of opportunity and actual green space to uh, achieve change. That's the caring component. Those things cannot be faked. And you see it in people's disposition, optimism, excitement about the work and earnestness in their efforts. I, I think you need to watch out for people who are looking just for the outcome and the and the limelight and to check a box because it takes a lot of effort to check that box. I, there's this just amazing quote by Carrie Lawrence, who's the first female F-14 Tomcat pilot, who said, the process is where you figure out who's worth being part of the outcome. And that goes back to my notion of no shortcuts. You have to put in the work. You need to have the discipline. You need to deal with the obstacles and reward people for managing those obstacles, not for encountering them, and give them an incentive to to overcome those obstacles. And that's, that's when you really achieve change at scale, not just change at an individual level. When you have a team of people who are, who have those attributes and who have such alignment with the mission of the organization, that's when you really achieve magic in the workplace.
0: Great stuff, Manuel. Where can people find you?
1: I think you can look me up on
0: LinkedIn at Manuel Cuevas at LinkedIn. We'll definitely include the links into the show. So really appreciative of you hanging out with us. I think everyone that's listening to this conversation will learn a lot from it. I I, I want to call out one particular thing that came up in the end of the conversation that I think is really important. There was a lot of things that stand out on the conversation as a whole. That was your comment about you got to put in the work. It actually reminded me of a book called Chop, Wood, Carry Water. And this entire conversation that we've been having is about how do you become elite as a leader, as an organization? And what you just mentioned about putting in the work is a direct line to becoming elite because becoming elite isn't about the outcome that you're chasing. It's about falling in love with the process that will get you there. And your no shortcuts call out is extremely important because the people that want to take the shortcuts, want to hit fast forward, those are inevitably the actions that put you in a position to fall short of becoming elite. And I think that's really important to call out and say.
1: I think it is important to also say that sometimes you do get those immediate outcomes. The question is, do they last? Do they achieve that lasting moving of the needle? Uh, organizations need to continue to move. So it's hard to talk about an outcome, but to me, it's more of a moving the needle. And if you take shortcuts, you may just get an episode outcome, but it usually a new flavor of the month comes in and that then the other one disappears.
0: I I love how you call that out because if you can't map out how you got there, you got there by accident. And in order to become elite, you need to be intentional. For those of you who have been listening, we appreciate uh, you hanging out with us. Uh, If you like the conversation, leave us a review. And then tune in next time where we'll bring in another great leader to share with us their insights, their game-changing realizations that help them build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at co/hrimpact.